And uh, for the rest of us, I would invite you to turn to not Hebrews. First time I've said that in 18 months, uh, but if you turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. And we're just going to read together a single verse, verse 4, and uh, hopefully take some time to consider that. Hebrew, or, yeah, Hebrews. <laughs> okay, so now we can begin to figure out how long is it going to take him before he uh, quits saying Hebrews, right? Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And before we pray, let me just remind us of the importance of, of this. This is the, the Shema passage to where Jews would pray this every day would begin each day with this statement. It's called the Shema passage, because that's the Hebrew word that's translated as hear. And it really means to heed, pay attention to, and put this into practice. The Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. And that's tremendous hope. Let's pray. Our Father, you who are one with the Spirit, one with the Son, our God who is three in one, we turn our attention to you. And we thank you so much for the magnificent love that you've shown us. We thank you for the image that we've just sung about or heard sung of, of you receiving us with your arms open wide, promising to walk with us and to keep us moving forward in our love for you. And Father, one of the ways you do that is through the preaching of your word. And so we pray that you would utilize the preaching this morning to impact our lives. We desire, O oh God, that we would be changed that we would grow in our love for you and that that would be demonstrated in lives that bring glory and honor to your name. We pray that you'll move in the hearts of our children who are back in children's worship. Our God, we ask that you would bring them to salvation. Give them a trust in Jesus that will completely change their lives for the rest of eternity. For all of us, Lord, be here and speak. We ask in your precious name. Amen. I mentioned during one of the services yesterday that I, I, one of the things I appreciate about memorial services or funeral services, I get to use the Greek word eulogy. Um, it's always fun to use Greek words, but uh, to, to remember what eulogy means, and uh, a eulogy means it's a good word, and it's, it's used as bless in the New Testament uh, or praise. Um, and when we think about speaking a good word about someone, and that's what we do in, in uh, a eulogy, and, and I like eulogies. Some people, you know, sometimes we, we want to complain. It's like, well, they weren't all perfect. It's like, yeah, yeah, but these are the good things about them, and I just want to focus on that because that's the part that most reflected God, right? We're all imperfect. We don't have to display that all the time, right? That's why we wear clothes, and that's a good thing. Um, but to speak of the good, and that's a wonderful thing. And when, when, when you hear eulogies, you get to know the person a little bit better. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, you get to hear what different people, their experience of this individual, and you, you get this, this vision, a little more of the depth of who this person was. And, and, it's, and it's just a, a, a rich, wonderful time, and I appreciate it tremendously. You get to learn what that person's character was like what their values were, what were the things that were important to them. 
you almost always get to hear some of their quirks, right? Because that's the humor, and, and you see that, and, and that's a fun thing. And you see their loves and their joys, and those are things that are worth meditating on. Um, and as I already mentioned, it is the, the word that's used to, to bless, um, and uh, it is a way in which we, we bless those that we love. Well, in 2024, for those who are visiting, so you may know, each year I choose a, a theme that guides uh, the, the preaching ministry. And in 2024, um, it's come to my mind that I'm, I'm going to be focusing on intimacy with God. That he's not just a, a, a way off up there, but he's a God who relates to us each intimately and closely. And so we're going to be considering that throughout the year. Uh, and, and most of the sermons are going to come from uh, John 13 through 16, which is called the Upper Room Discourse. And this is where on Jesus' uh, last night on this earth, he gathers his disciples together. And they start out by celebrating the, the very first Lord's Supper. And he spends time with them and, and, and he shares with them. It's kind of his, his last words before he goes to be with the Father. And he just spends that time with him, developing that intimacy. And I want to, from that, to draw out for each one of us just how we grow in our intimate relationship with God and to spend time throughout the next year looking at that. Well, this year, and I tried to design the, the Hebrew study that we would end with a little bit of time, and I think we've got six or eight weeks before Advent. And during that time, what I want to do is I want to take our congregation through some contemplations of God by looking at some of his attributes and trying to know God a little bit better and to draw closer to him and take time to just meditate on who he is. So this series will be the contemplation of the attributes of God. And this morning, I want to ask us to contemplate the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God. I want to read a little bit from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm sorry, I don't think I put this up on a slide, so if, if Chris is going all over, I've got to find this. It, this is my bad, um, but I'll, I'll read it to you, and you're capable of following along. In the Confession, chapter 2, the very first paragraph, it begins by saying, There is but one only loving and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, and here's the part I want us to remember, without body parts, or passions. And it's important that we look at it. It, is, it doesn't say without body parts. <laughs> it's without body, parts, or passions. And by passions, it means controlling emotions, where the, the emotions just kind of drive you. And, and God does not have that. And we recognize he doesn't have a body. I get that. I get that. I can see that he doesn't have passions as far as he's not just this God who's flying off the handle with his emotions all over the place, right? He's stable. But he doesn't have parts, which is to say he's simple. We're a composite being as humans. We, we aren't body and soul. We're body-soul united together. And what death is is a ripping apart of those, which is why even as, as we die, we're not perfect. Death is not the goal of the Christian we then are, are, are in the presence of God and the blessedness is beyond imagination. And yet even there in the presence of God, we're looking for something else that's to come, something that's even better. And that's when that body will be resurrected and reunited with the soul. And that is the Christian hope. 
That's what we look forward to. That's what we hope for. That's what we live for. And we recognize that God is going to accomplish that. But that's because we are a composite, if you will, of those two elements of us. But God is simple. And so I want us to contemplate the simplicity of God this morning. And there, there are three things that we're going to draw from that to, to, to allow it to impact us. And, and if you've heard me preach much, you know I, I don't like to preach about them. I like to preach about us. Um, and I don't want to preach about saying, oh, just think this thought. Yeah, we want to think this thought, but it should impact our lives. And so each of the points are going to be directing us as to how this truth of God should impact us. And the first one is that we should be overwhelmed by his perfection. To be overwhelmed by his perfection. Notice that it begins, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. He's one, which is a word which is simple. And that's what he wants to communicate to us. Wilhelmus Ebrackel, who is a reformer in the Second Reformation, a, a Dutchman, uh, writes about the simplicity of God. And he does a very good job of, of analyzing the idea of composition. And he points out that composition implies imperfection, it implies dependence, and it implies divisibility. That's what the idea of, of composition carries with it. And so I think it's important for us to think about that, and, and that will then form the, the outline or the, the, the skeleton for the sermon this morning. We're going to look at those three elements as how God, who is not a composite, is perfect, is our beginning thought, that he is perfect. Now, we can be overwhelmed at different times in our life. Like I, I remember being so overwhelmed by just the... The, the, the grandeur, the, the greatness, the massiveness of the Grand Canyon. And the first time we saw it, and, and I've, I always joke about this and, and realize, I, you know, you hear people talk about, you know, getting weak in the knees when they see something. And I always thought that that was just a hyperbole until I saw the Grand Canyon and I had to sit down. I could not continue to stand. I was so overwhelmed by just the immensity and, and, the divert, and everything about it, it was just incredible. It was, it was perfection that God had brought in this, this incredible uh, thing that God has, has provided. So sometimes we're overwhelmed by immensity. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by skill. So if you ever go to the Louvre and uh, you fight through the crowds and uh, you're actually able to follow things and you get back and there's, there's one painting in the Louvre that is sectioned off. I mean, it's in a, in a grand hall, but it's sectioned off. You can't get, I think it's maybe about 10, 12 feet. Does that seem about right? That there, there's a rope and you can't get up to it. And you've got this line of people that are maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 rows deep of people holding up their phones, trying to take a picture. And uh, when we were there last, I, I, I tried to fight through for Robin so she could get up to the front row. And then I went back to the back exhausted. But we, we got her there and it's the Mona Lisa. And it's, you know, I expected, you know, that it was going to be probably the size of this. And, it, you know, it's a little thing. Um, but you, you look at that little Mona Lisa, but yet you realize, you know, just the skill that da Vinci had to be able to, to paint that. It's just amazing. And you'd be overwhelmed as you just look at that and go, how is that even possible that an individual can have that type of skill? We might be overwhelmed by beauty, which was the, the slide that was just up. Uh, a sunset over the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
And again, you got to sit, right? Because you just look at that, and, and it's a different than, than looking at the Grand Canyon, which is almost overpowering, but this is just, just you, you're just taken in by the, the perfection of that moment and the beauty that God has given in that place. But the idea of being overwhelmed by perfection is difficult for us because we never encounter perfection. Um, C.S. Lewis in his uh, second of what is called the Space Trilogy, it's uh, Paralandra, tells a story of, actually, it's supposed to be Lewis who's, who's, who's uh, narrating a moment in which he comes into um, uh, a room and he finds in there, he calls it a column of light, but not light like we have, but light itself in a column. He says it doesn't, doesn't illuminate the, the roof or the floor, it's just this column of light that is there, and he realizes that, that he's seeing what he calls like the, the angel of, of the planet Mars, and, and he's standing there, and, and he's just seeing this great being, and he gives me, at least in my mind, a little bit of a picture of what it mu- must be like to stand in the presence of what is perfect. He says, the other was its angle. It was not at right angle to the floor. But as soon as I've said this, I hasten to add that this way of putting it is a later reconstruction. What one actually felt at the moment was that the column of light was vertical, but the floor was not horizontal. The whole room seemed to keel over as if it were on board ship. The impression, however, produced was that this creature had reference to some horizontal, to some whole system of directions based outside the earth, and that its mere presence imposed that alien system on me and abolished the terrestrial horizon. That's my picture. That's, that's what I think of. If, if, to come into the presence of, of perfection, it would look like, well, if, if, if God were here, he would seem off, right? But when we look, we would realize, no, no, he's the right. And we would be aware that we are all off and we would be completely thrown off our equilibrium. Nothing would seem right because now we're seeing perfection and we've never encountered it in any place in our life. And it would be utterly and completely overwhelming. We couldn't stand. We would be encompassed by this idea that goes beyond our imagination. Consider his perfection that's seen in his simplicity for just a moment. When we think of the simplicity of God, a part of what we see is that God is his own standard. He refers to this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, when he asks the question, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Who will you liken to God? Who, who is he like? What he's saying is, no one. He's saying, no, I am my own standard. There's no standard that you can compare me with that I should be its equal. I don't have to measure up to any standard. I conform to nothing but myself, is what he says. The ultimate and absolute of all nonconformists is God himself, the only one who can ever and always be a nonconformist. It's God. There is no one like him. He is simple. He is himself. He is his own standard. 
We, we look at uh, different philosophers try to, to grasp this, and Immanuel Kant came up with the idea of the, the, the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. And the noumenal realm is, is where uh, the, the idea, the absolute is found, and the phenomenal is the realm in which we live. So, so to him, he would, he would think of this idea, of how do we know that uh, this is a, a music stand, right? Beside the fact that it stands and there's music on it. <clears throat> but even there, as soon as you see it, even if you can't see the music on it, you say, that's a music stand. We know what it is, right? Because, and he would say, because it conforms to some extent with the characteristics of that which is in the noumenal realm of a music stand. You know what a cat is because a cat looks a bit like the noumenal concept of a cat. And all that Kant is trying to get across is how do we understand what is a chair? How do we understand what is a, a table? How do we understand what is a building? How do we under, how do we, what, what, what is, what is it that gives the standard by which we know what things are, right? And we know that man was made after a standard, right? Because God said, let us make man in our own image so that we are, are made after the image of God. He is the standard by which we are understood. But God, is his own standard. There's, there's no model that he was formed after. He is that standard himself. He is good. Now, when we say that, we begin to think about what is, well, how do we define good? No, 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 no. He is good. Goodness is defined by its conformity to him. And to the extent that it conforms with him, it is indeed good. And if it violates that conformity at any point, it ceases to be good. God is that standard himself, his righteousness. And I love this. It was early as a Christian. It would have been uh, probably in the uh, spring of 1983, Pastor Paul Barnes was preaching at the uh, Evangelical Free Church in Loveland, Colorado, and he was preaching through Romans, and he started to talk about the righteousness of God, and I will never forget, as he said, God's righteousness is his conformity with himself. I like that. The word righteous, whether it's the, the, the Hebrew word sadiq or, and, or uh, the Greek word uh, dikaios, either way, it means to conform to a standard. That's what it is to be righteous. But God's righteousness is his own self-conformity, that he's consistent with himself. This is the idea of God being his own standard. We don't know about that in our experience. We want to be that, but we're not. And I think that our, the effect needs to have on us is to, to bow in utter amazement at a being that can be his own standard. He is God. And he's also one with his own attributes. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number four, asks the question, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the answer to that question. And you notice all of those different attributes are, are thrown out there. And so it's so easy for us, and particularly as we begin to look at the attributes of God in the next several weeks, we can, we can begin to think of these as separate individual attributes. But these attributes are all united in God. That they're not a bunch of different 
They are God himself is this. We think of people. And as we're describing a person, we may describe their height, right? We may describe their hair color, which can change from time to time. We may describe uh, their intellect. We may describe various other elements about the individual, like their ability to jump, right? Um, but if you remove any of those attributes from that person, are they still that person? If a person with long hair shaves it all off, are they still the same person? If Michael Jordan were unable to jump anymore, would he still be Michael Jordan? Absolutely. Those, those characteristics don't, don't take away from who that, that person is. But you see, as we begin to think about God, it's an entirely different thing. Again, quoting uh, Wilhelmus Brackel. He says, All that may be discerned in God is God himself. His goodness, wisdom, and omnipotence is the good, wise, and omnipotent God himself. So you cannot take away any of God's attributes and still have God. He is that, and his wisdom is the wise God. It's all that makes up who he is. He's one in his attributes, which means God's mercy and his wrath always are united in who he is. Which is why the cross had to take place. Because his mercy and his wrath must meet together. They do not fight against one another. His justice and his grace are not in opposition to one another, but they work together. And we see again in the cross, how in the cross he gives us the grace of salvation, and in the cross we see the justice of God. And if God did not show his justice in the cross, he ceases to exist because he is perfectly just. By the same token, if my sins were placed upon the cross and paid for by Jesus, God would cease to exist if he judged me for those sins. For he would cease to be just. His justice would have been served twice. And God cannot have that because he is a God of grace. He is a God of justice. He's both combined to recognize that. And, and we struggle with that. Don't we forget that sometimes? We want to emphasize just one aspect of who God is and forget the other aspects of him. We want to just focus in one area because we want to make God manageable. I remember one of the saddest um, sentences I ever heard. I was witnessing with a man shortly after he became a Christian. He'd been a part of the same uh, psychic development group that I'd been a part of, and I was sharing my faith with him. And he said, the God you're describing, I could never worship such a God and I said, that's really sad because that's the only God there is. And so you've now cut yourself off from the possibility of ever finding that which is truth. And it's a horribly sad statement to make. Our job isn't to determine what God ought to be. Our job is to bow before the God who is and to recognize who he is and to give him fully all of ourself. So first of all, be overwhelmed by his perfections, and secondly, hide in his independence. The second implication of composition is dependence. That is the idea that water is dependent on both hydrogen and oxygen to exist, right? Right? Thank you. I always look up to our chemists to be sure I got this right. I'm always nervous when I, when I step outside of my realm. I'm okay in philosophy and, and theology. I feel good there, but I really get nervous here, so thanks. So, so water, 
If you don't have hydrogen, water no longer exists, correct? Yeah, because it's a composite. It's dependent. Each part is dependent upon the other. But not so with God. God is simple and he needs nothing. He needs nothing. Which makes him a safe place, doesn't it? Because he's never going to say, well, I got to leave you because I need to go get something else. He's okay. He's completely independent. We see this as we look back at our passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And if you have the New American Standard, you'll note that both of those are all caps. That means it is the Tetragrammaton. That is the name of God. It is Yahweh or Jehovah that is spoken of here. This is his name. This is who he is. And this describes to us who he is. We first see his name when he talks about to Moses. And, or we see him tell them his name. He tells Moses. Moses says, well, who shall I tell has sent me? And he says, I am has sent you. I am that I am. It's derived from the Hebrew word uh, uh, chayah, which is uh, I am, um, or to be, and uh, God is declaring this to be himself. So we want to hide in the independence of the Lord, that he is self-existent. I'm going to look at a, a, a three passages here for us to just kind of get a, a picture of this self-existence of God and what that means. And the first is from Isaiah chapter 44. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. I like that. Who's like me? Let him declare it. In other words, okay, every other God, speak up now or forever hold your peace, right? I think of the book of Revelation, there was silence in heaven for the space of 30 minutes. Because there's no one else to speak, because he's the only one. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. He says, I'm, I'm it. I am the first and the last. I'm the one who got this all started. I started it because I am that first. Um, we see in Isaiah 45. Verses 5 through sin, once again, God raises this uh, message. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all this. I think he's trying to make a point. Would you agree? And then we look at uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 13. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the first one. Thomas Aquinas presented very clearly what's called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And that is he begins to say, and he says, it's clear by looking at creation that things are in motion. And by that he means things are also changing, and, and, uh, but that things are moving. And he says, if things are moving, nothing can move of itself. What makes it move? Well, something has to have force upon it to make it move. Great. Well, what put force upon that item to make it move, to make the next thing move? Well, what force was on that? And he says, you go back with an infinite regression to prevent that. You have to come to an initial first unmoved mover. 
that he moved things on his own, and Aquinas would say, and that is God. Not to prove what the character of God is, but the existence of God. As we look at the, the cosmos around us, it seems obvious that there is a God. I remember the conversation I had with a guy who was walking through the church uh, yard in, in Mesa, Arizona, and we were talking about God. Go figure. And he says to me, well, well how do you know there is a God? I said, he said, well, you got me there. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Because the more I think about it, the more I realize, thinking about nature, clearly God is the one who started it. Where did matter come from? We can posit the idea of the, the Big Bang Theory, which is that all matter was in a, a, a single, teeny, tiny, microscopic point, the singularity. It was so compressed in there with, with such incredible gravity, and then at the moment it exploded and it spread out. Still raises the question. Still does not answer. Where did the matter come from? The Bible tells us that God made it. Where, how is there spatial existence? Why is there space in which to move about? It doesn't have to be, but God made it. He put that, why is there life? Where did life itself come from? Even if we get the idea of all this matter, for matter to produce life is inconsistent with matter. But it's not inconsistent with the God who is life. He's the unmoved first mover. He brings it into existence by His greatness. He needs nothing. The Trinity is in a perfect relationship with itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, getting along just fine, and so he freely loves. Freely loves, and, and I've, I've, I've talked about this at other times. It's so easy for us to love someone in order to get love from them, right? But see, God never does that. He loves because he is a loving God. He's not trying to get anything from us. And so that's the kind of independence that he's so free in himself, I can hide in him. And the third point is that I need to rest in his unity. That's the third impl implication of the composition is divisibility. The Trinity is not three persons who get along really well. You ever think about the Trinity? Some of you are like, I try not to. <laughs> it just gives me a headache. <laughs> I don't know what to do with the Trinity, right? And it, and it is because it's so different from us. But sometimes we can think about the Trinity, we can think, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, they're just like really, really good friends who just hang out and they just enjoy each other's company. It's just a wonderful friendship. That's not the Trinity at all. That's missing the, 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 the intrinsic unity of the Godhead. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory with a single will that they have together. And as we think about that relationship, one of the characteristics of that relationship that is so important to our existence is love. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love one another. Which means then that love is an essential characteristic of who God is. That for eternity, before there was time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were together loving each other. And so the beauty is that what love is, 
Love is the overflow of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we get to enjoy that. We get to taste something of God when we love. When Jesus prays that we will be in Him as they are in one another, that they might taste what they experience, He's saying that they may really know what love is. And we're able to experience it. And it's love that led Jesus to redeem us. There's one place in Scripture that we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in their love for one another and their love for us in redeeming us. And that's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I simply want to walk through this and, and consider the reality of this uh, passage. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages of Scripture. So I ask you to just, you, you can jot them down if you want. That's great. Or if you want, just take the time to consider the power of each of these passages and what it tells us about our salvation, our redemption in particular. You see, the Father planned our redemption. We see in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be, there's our word, ulageo, eulogy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You see this beautiful picture of how God the Father has planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. He's determined that we would be predestined in order to be adopted as his sons before he ever made the world he knew your name before he ever created time or space before there was a before God planned to redeem you and it was the father who planned this and we see this throughout scripture we see in in psalm chapter 139 verse 16 an incredible, hopeful uh, reminder as, as David is considering how God has examined him. And he reads, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That God the Father wrote down the days of our life before any of them had ever come into being. In the book of Revelation, we see the book of life revealed to us. And in verse 7, we read something about that book of life. It was also given to him, make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given him. This is to the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So he talks about the fact that those whose name hasn't been written will give themselves over to following after this, this evil that is there. And in John chapter 6... Jesus tells us something of what the Father has done. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me, all of the names that the Father has written in the book of life will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. What a beautiful reminder that God the Father has planned our redemption. Amen. And God the Son redeemed us, Ephesians 1, 7. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven, things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. This is the work of the Son in providing redemption for you. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then in Colossians chapter 1, beautiful passage, verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. God the Father has planned your redemption. God the Son has redeemed you. And God the Spirit applies and secures our redemption. Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians. In Him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to our redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I want you to notice something about that. He does not say that you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, although you were, but he says you're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit is God's seal. He is what secures us in our relationship with God the Father. So we read in, in Romans Chapter 8, another beautiful section telling us about the, the work of the Spirit in our lives, beginning in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And again in verses 9 through 11 of the same chapter. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amen? This is our tremendous hope. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit working together to redeem His people as the Father planned your salvation, as the, as the Son redeemed you, and as the Spirit applies that redemption to you and secures you in that redemption. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, indivisible one, working together in absolute unity to give you salvation. Will you trust him? Will you trust that God? If you have never put your faith in Jesus, will this picture of what he has done for you draw you to say, Father, forgive me and receive me because of the work of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit? Ask him to save you this very day.
I hope, and, and I realized a, a risk in preaching this message. Uh, years ago, I preached a message. I was in the uh, last part of seminary. I had just been writing papers all week, and I was preaching, and I think it was uh, the, the title of the sermon was something like The Theological Implications of the uh, Passover Service for Christians in the New Covenant Celebrating Communion. Yeah, the title was better than the sermon. And I was afraid. It's like, as I'm preaching on the simplicity, I've got to work really hard to, to not put you all to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's a little heady. But I hope you see something of the richness of understanding that God is one. He's not a composite. He is one. And what that means is that, that we can be overwhelmed by that perfection of his oneness. We can hide in the reality of his independence. Makes him the only one we can ever hide in. And we can rest in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are united. What do you do? Trust him. And that's for every one of us, right? That's for every one of us. I know Robin and I talk about this all the time. It's like we've got to rest in him. We've got to trust him. As we go through difficult times in our life, as I was thinking of this, I think that there are, there are seven families in our church that have lost a family member in the last month. That's just, that's just a lot for a tiny little church like this. But we can hide in Christ, amen? He is a faithful tower of strength, and we can go to Him and find that place of hope. And so we can turn to Him and trust Him. We can draw close because He's there and He's willing to receive us. But to do that, let's remember that He is one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks. Thanks for stretching our brains. But thanks so much more for stretching our faith that we may really live out the reality that you are one. You're not three gods. You are one God, utterly and completely united, a single being, and you are our God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.